All right, church, we uh, are trucking through the, the book of 1 John together. Would you find your place in the little letter of 1 John close to the end of your Bible? We're honestly moving pretty fast through this little book. Uh, there's so much more that could be said each week. The biggest work I have in sermon prep is cutting, cutting out what I, what I shouldn't say or things that uh, maybe don't need to be said, just deciding what not to say. There's so much to say. Well, the Apostle John wrote his gospel, the the gospel of John. He wrote it, he says, um, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he wrote the gospel of John so that people would be saved, so that they would see Jesus for not just an ordinary man, but the God man who came to save. Well, he writes 1 John, and he gives us his reason for writing it in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John is all about giving assurance to the believer. If you're in the house and you've ever doubted your salvation, say amen. Amen. Yeah, it's pretty common. Like, Uh, I think all of us go through a a, a stint sometimes where we begin to doubt our relationship with God. Sometimes that's a result of sin in our lives. We we think to ourselves, if I'm sinning like this, I certainly can't have a relationship with God. Sometimes that's the case. Other times maybe you go off to college. There's a lot of college students here today. You go off to college and you start hearing a lot of things. And maybe for the first time your mind is open to what if I heard growing up is not true. What if what I heard and thought all along is not true and you start having loads of questions? That's that's very common. And John writes this letter to that need. Well, we've been digging through this book and loving the journey um, together. We're about three weeks in now. Uh, And so what I want you to see is that he's giving us tests for genuine faith. He's going to throughout the book, he's going to say, if you truly believe, then this will be true of your life. And uh, we've covered most of these, but I want to give you a list of five of them really quickly. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. This is uh, I think there are at least nine in this little letter that are uh, plain to see tests of genuine faith in Christ. Uh, The first one that we we spent uh, a good bit of time with is um, you must. He says, if you're a genuine believer, you Believe in the true Christ, the true Christ. So in chapter one, verses one through four, John goes to great lengths to say that Jesus is the incarnate son of God. He's not an ordinary man. He is the God man. He is that which was from the beginning. That's how John begins this book. That which was from the beginning has now made himself manifest to us. So to believe in any other variety of who Jesus is, is to make for yourself an idol. And faith in that Jesus will not save anybody. We must believe in the Jesus presented to us in Scripture. This is how he reveals himself. There's no fluidity in the identity of Christ. I think about um, Pedro, for example. Uh, if if I tried to introduce you to my friend Pedro and I said, yeah, haven't you met Pedro? You know, he's this short little uh, white dude with the spiky hair. You'd say, that's not Pedro. 
That's not pain. Because I don't get the right to re-identify who he is. He is who he is. When it comes to Jesus, it's the same way. We don't get to reshape his identity. We have to believe in him as he's revealed in Scripture. So John says you must believe in the true Christ. Secondly, he says true faith, genuine faith, confesses its sin. So you confess your sins. In 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2, John deals with this issue. And in particular, he's calling us Christians, us followers of Christ, to confess our sins to God. We spent some time doing that this morning. But many people try to conceal sin or we lie about it. We deny our sin altogether. Some even go the route of trying to redefine what is sin and what's not sin. That's pretty popular in our world today. But the truth is, your opinion about sin doesn't matter. What does God say? What does his word say about sin? That's the only thing that matters. And how you respond to that. So a true believer acknowledges God as supreme and confesses his sin against this God. Confession is to agree with God about what sin is and how we should feel about it. That I I should hate my sin just as God does. But we're to be transformed, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. The third thing John covers is in 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. And he says, genuine faith obeys God's word. So if Jesus is king, and he is, then the right and primary way that we relate to him is in submission to his authority and in obedience to his word, right? Everybody agree, church? You agree? So we relate to our king in submission to his authority. And John's going to say to know him is to obey him. To love him is to obey him. He's going to later in this book say that obedience to his commands, his commands are not burdensome. It's not hard to obey someone you deeply love. Fourth, John says... True, genuine faith loves the brothers, loves the brothers. First John 2, 7 through 11, walking in the light as Christ is, is to love others. Scripture says if you say you're in the light, but you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. This is a test of who you are and whether or not you really believe in the son of God. So John calls us to evaluate our love for others. I want to press on this for just a moment. Because I think this is really an issue we, maybe we should have spent more time with. In our day to day, if we're not careful, we find ourselves put in a category, you know, and in that category, part of the obligation is to hate the people in the other category. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. And so what I'm saying is. We belong in a category as followers of Christ. And that category is we're children of God by his grace and mercy. And the way we respond to others, according to John, is we respond to others with genuine love, no matter their mess. You tracking with me? So John says, test your love. Is there hatred in your heart? Because Jesus says to hate in the heart is murder. Test your love. And then number five, this is what we'll deal with today. John says that true Christians do not love the world. True Christians do not love the world. 
The world's passing away. To love the world and its stuff is to be deceived and to seek true satisfaction in things rather than God. It's like a a dangling carrot, if you will. You constantly are chasing after this thing you think is going to satisfy you, and it never does. If you if you do attain some of it, all you want is more, right? It's never satisfying. Hmm. Well, this letter, the whole letter, it's only five chapters, but it ends with a very short admonition from John. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And this is a warning in the same vein with what we'll talk about today. So once again, the objective of this letter is that you may know it's about clarity in your own heart, assurance of your salvation, that you have eternal life. John's writing from both positive affirmations, encouraging things and negative warnings. And today we're going to see both. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12 and reading through verse 17. In this text, we have both beautiful fatherly encouragement and A fatherly warning. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We ask now that you reveal yourself in it, that you change us by it and bring glory to your name through it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So this section of this letter, um, John gets the attention of his audience. Um, He's crossing the spectrum of life and maturity, speaking to old men, young men, children. He's crossing it all. He addresses everyone as children, including men and women. Then he has a few specific words for uh, the elderly, wiser fathers and the young and dumb, (laughs) but strong uh, sons. Right. And so we're inclined to. Clue in and really listen to what John has to say. But what we see here is that he's giving powerful gospel encouragement and a surgically precise warning. No matter where you are in life, you need both. 
You need the goodness of the gospel. You need to hold on to Christ and who he is and what he's done. And you need to hear a clear and loving warning of the dangers of your own deceptive heart and the deceitfulness of this world. Would you imagine for just a minute that your hardworking, disciplined, level-headed daughter has graduated from high school. She's about to head off to college. This is starting to get real for for me, uh, where my children are. It's not far away. About to head off to college, and so you think to yourself, I think I'm going to write a note to my daughter. Um, I want her to... Just, she's going to college. I'm not going to be there. I want to write a note. So you write a note from the heart of a proud parent and a realistic one. And maybe it goes something like this. We're so excited for you in this next chapter of your life. You've grown into such a bright and disciplined young lady. God has been so gracious to you. You belong to him. You know Christ. Your life is in his hands. You're strong because his word is in you and you have victory over sin through Jesus. Then you may add this. Don't go crazy at college. (laughs) Remember that the heart that loves God does not love this sinful world. There are going to be difficult battles that you haven't faced yet, baby. The sensual passions and pleasures of your flesh. The desire to get whatever your eyes want. And the striving to be at the center of the party. All of that is emptiness. Listen to me, it's all fleeting pleasure with an aftertaste of guilt and shame. Don't give your heart to any of it. Remember, true joy is in doing the will of God, loving Christ and living for him. That is full and lasting joy. We love you, mom and dad. Does that sound like a realistic letter? Something you as a father or mother would want to write and send with your daughter that you love and trust and you're entrusting her into God's hand. But at the same time, you're mindful that this world is a dangerous, scary place, hard College is crazy. Right, college students, college is a bit crazy. Well, now we notice two themes in this letter, don't we? Loving gospel encouragement and a precise parental warning. Well, this is how love speaks, isn't it? Love speaks this way. Lauren and I have five children. Um... We're not waiting until college to talk like this to our kids. Parents, I want to encourage you just for a moment. Lift up Christ and who he is. Show your children. Model it. Show them that he is the fulfillment of your joy. Don't let them question what's your strongest desire. Show them it's Jesus. And say to them, don't be deceived. This world has a lot of tempting pleasures that can get a hold of your heart in a hurry. Parents, raise your kids to love Christ and not this world. Well, 
This is so similar to what we see in John's letter today. He's writing to fathers, to children, to sons, to to everyone he can think of. And he's giving a gospel encouragement and a strong warning. Let's look at both quickly. The gospel encouragement John gives is he says this in Christ, your sins are forgiven. That's good, isn't it? Now listen, the, the beautiful, this beautiful good news just never gets old, never gets old because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. He is our propitiation. We just learned last week that our sins past, present and future will not be held against us. Now, church, that's some good news in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. John is writing with beautiful encouragement. What we've learned is that God doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend they never happened. No, he's full of grace and mercy, but he's also a just God. And so he sent his son Jesus to pay the price for sin. God's wrath for sin must be satisfied. And that's why Jesus came. He came to die in our place. But here in this little letter, John tells us an added detail. He says this, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Don't miss it. This is big news. It means you're not at the center of the gospel. His glory is. What we see here is that the centerpiece of the good news of the gospel is the glory of King Jesus. He saves sinners like me and you so that he can say, look at how beautiful I am. In Ephesians 2, 7, Paul reminds us why God saves. He says it's so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven, listen, so that God gets glory. That is such good truth. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. John goes on to say, in Christ, you know the Father. You know the Father. 1 John 2.13. Salvation is not just a transaction, right? We don't just come to God to do a deal with him. Hey, man, I, you know, I've got this sin. You want to make a trade? Um, we make a trade. I, I'd like to be forgiven and do a deal. I'll take your righteousness. You take my sin. It's not just a transaction where we get our guilt washed away. No, it's the beginning of a relationship with the creator God. This is what salvation is all about. It's all about relationship. And John says, you know him who is from the beginning. You know the Father. This is amazing. In Christ, God has made himself knowable. Jesus said to Philip and the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What we get in the gospel that can never be taken away is a real and lasting relationship with God Almighty. Isn't that good? So John says, you know, the father, then he goes on and says, you have overcome, you have overcome. John calls out the young men for a minute. He says, you're strong. 
The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We'll spend just a moment here. John's speaking some truth over young men. Young women as well. And he says you are strong. But then he lifts out the source of strength and the certainty of it. John gives us more on this idea in just a a couple of chapters in chapter five. Look at that with me, if you will. Flip over chapter five, verses four and five. And look at what John says here about being an overcomer, overcoming this world, having victory. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Now, listen, what is it that makes a follower of Jesus strong and victorious? Is it his brute strength and ability to fight for Christ? No. No. What is it that makes a believer strong? It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's the person and work of Christ. John says here is our faith in the son of God. Now, unless you think, unless you begin to think that faith is a work. Let me portray it this way. Faith might be like you're drowning and someone throws you a a little life raft thing and you reach out and hold it. All that you are is dependent on this little life raft. You don't then turn to your friends and look and say, look how well I hold on. I got this. No, faith is the is the holding to the one who's holding you. It's not our faith. It's our king. It's the one in whom our faith rests. Our faith is in the son of God on our own. We're nothing but in Christ. Romans says we are more than conquerors. So here's the admonition. Keep on resting in Christ's finished work for you. You don't have to work every day of your life to feel assured of salvation. No, you rest in the work of Christ. And in resting, you yoke up to him and you you go to work with him. But you don't work for salvation. You work from it. Mm. It's the work of Christ and the word of God. These two things, probably more, but these are the two things from this text that make us strong, strong. We keep resting in Christ's finished work and we keep trusting in God's word. Listen to the scripture as it talks about the rest of scripture. Psalm 119, 105 says his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. What about Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11? This one specifically again targeting a young man. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a good question. Young men in the room, listen. How? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. What makes us strong? It's the word of God. We store up the word of God in our hearts that we may not sin. 
of all the armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, the armor of God, of all of it, only the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is both offensive and defensive. It's this weapon that we're meant to use in the heat of battle. When the, when the enemy comes to you, listen, the enemy loves to tempt you and miss you. Tempt you in this ear and then guilt you in this ear. That's the way he works. He's your tempter and your accuser. But the sword of the spirit, the word of God is how we rise up against the enemy. We, we pull the word of God out of its sheath and we go to battle against our enemy, speaking the truth of Christ over his voice. Amen. That's right. So speak God's word. Amen, girl. Speak God's word over the voice of the evil one. Now, this is John's powerful encouragement. It's the gospel and it's encouraging. Listen, here it is again, church. Your sins are forgiven, right? You know God the Father and you have overcome evil in Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? Well, then he pivots to a surgically sharp Warning, And when you hear it, like the love of a father to his college student headed off to college, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. This is a test of genuine faith. This warning has eternally significant ramifications. Listen to that last bit again. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Essentially, he's saying you cannot love God and the world at the same time. The church today, especially in our culture, needs to hear the trumpet sound on this warning. We need to wake up. Charles Spurgeon um, once said this. I want to quote him. He said, I believe one reason why the church at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Well, that was over 100 years ago. Has it gotten worse or better? Church, the everyday fight that you and I face in this world is probably, probably not persecution from the world. It's more likely seduction of the world. Our world, to be honest, doesn't really hate us like it's hated Christ. Mainly because we're not that different from them. Our world and our hearts are both entangled with the same Worldly thorns. So many studies have been done 
bring out some statistics that are shocking. And we'll just walk through some of these. Hopefully opening our eyes to the reality that we need to hear John's warning here. These studies show that professing Christians are just as materialistic, just as self-indulgent, just as sexually immoral, just as easily triggered and easily offended. And we could keep going. We could just keep on going. We're just as worldly as the world in many ways. We love money and stuff just as much as the world does. Our, uh, our spending habits, our shopping habits are exactly the same. Uh, we spend our money exactly the same ways as the world does. So it's no wonder that our giving to the gospel is inconsistent at best. It's hard to be generous when we are owned by our stuff. And we're in debt up to our eyeballs. Your heart might want to give, but it's not there to give. Have you ever wondered? I know I have. I dream of what it would be like. What could we do for Jesus if every follower of Christ in this faith family was committed to give just a 10 percent, just a tithe? Just what could we do if we gave like that? I wonder if our love for Christ was determined solely by how we use our money. How high would he rank on the list of what we love? It's not just money. More statistics than ever are showing that professing Christians are just as sexually immoral as unbelievers. The number of men viewing pornography is virtually the same. Professing Christians are just as sexually active outside of marriage as the world. We are test driving intimacy rather than making the lifelong vows to a wife or husband that God designed. In fact, this has really become normal. This up and coming generation really doesn't know much different because we've not stood our ground on what God desires. We've not taught the truth of what God desires for relationships and how God has designed sex and love and marriage to be beautifully worshipful to him. Christian marriages are just as likely to end in divorce as non-Christians. And in the home, parenting Professing Christians are parenting our children with mostly the same priorities as the world. We, uh, we drive our kids all over the place for sports and entertainment, showing them what really matters in this life. A group of uh, church teenagers. So these are teenagers that attend church on a regular basis. They were polled and asked What hinders your family's spiritual life the most? And 80% of them said the busyness of our family schedule. So we're too busy for Jesus? It's not that our kids are involved in bad things. 
It's just we're not involving him in the best things. And I tell all of this not to heap any load of guilt on us, but just to bring to light the truth. That John's words we all need to hear. Do not love the world or the things in the world. We're living in a day where you can't tell where the world ends and the church begins. Something's got to change. So John hits the nail on the head here when he says, don't love the world. We need to hear this warning today. Not just in this room, but the church at large needs to hear this. It's the strongest language in the book. He warns that loving this world is eternally costly. I want you to notice the reasons quickly that he gives why we should not love the world. He says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in his parable of the soils. You know, he's talking about the soil, the, the seed that landed on the different soils. And he said, uh, uh, it talks specifically about the, the thorny soil. And when the thorns grow up, they choke the life out of a new plant. This is similar to, to what John is saying here in that when we love the world, it chokes out love for God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And John's saying, give your love to Jesus. Give your devotion to Jesus. Don't be deceived. This world is after your whole heart. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The second reason he gives is that the world and the lusts of it are passing away. Listen, church, it's all so temporary. We're spending our whole lives on things that will not matter in 100 years. Like all of life, we seem to be investing in this place. And I want to say to us from the rooftops, we're just passing through. This is not our home. If you're a follower of Christ, invest in eternity, not just this place and the stuff of this world. It's all passing away. It's like building our lives on something that won't last. We're going to build our homes on the sand, as Jesus said. When the storm comes, it'll just wash away. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. This world and the lusts of it are passing away. It's all going to collapse. And if you're too invested in it, it'll take you with it. The third reason John gives is if you do the will of the Father, you will live forever. This is great news. What he's saying is that the opposite of loving the world is loving God with your whole life. True love for God shows itself in doing His will. Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Well, the enemy's crafty, but his tactics are as old as the Garden of Eden, aren't they? This is the same game he was playing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Targeting them in these three ways. He's targeting their appetite, the lust of the flesh. He's targeting their affections, 
the lust of the eyes. And he targets the ambitions, the pride of life. Let's just talk quickly about these. The lust of the flesh. Well, our flesh has natural desires. Our sinful tendency is to fulfill them in a way that's contrary to God's will. That's all this is. So we remember that Adam and Eve, they knew God had said, don't eat of that tree. If you do, it's going to kill you. But they saw that the tree was good for food. The fruit of that tree looks good for food. They wanted their appetite to be fulfilled in their own way. And essentially, this is sin, right? We do the same things. For example, we know God has designed sex for uh, to be beautifully uh, enjoyed in covenant marriage between a husband and a wife. But we want it our way. We want it our, on our timeline. We're drawn to sin in this way because these desires are strong. And we often don't like God's plan to fulfill them. So the enemy deals with our appetite. He deals with our affections, the lust of the eyes. Our eyes, the Bible says, are the window to your soul. The enemy often sets the hook with a simple look. I think about King David. When he should have been off at war, he's wandering the, the rooftop and he looks down and he sees the beautiful Bathsheba. And he had an opportunity right then to go, oh, I shouldn't see that. I need to go back inside. But he didn't. He said, oh, I want, I want that. I want her. And the enemy, with one simple look, set the hook And David lied, committed adultery, and even murder. One look, and his gaze captured his heart. Well, we want what we give our gaze to. Men, especially young men, let me speak to you right now. We must be on guard here because we are so, by God's design, visually oriented. And you must be on guard. You must say to your eyes like Job did in Job 31.1. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a young woman. You must know that your eyes will betray you. Surrender them to Jesus. It's no wonder that pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Because we think that we can secretly give our eyes to something and that our heart won't go with it. Don't believe the lie. The enemy will hook you with a look. Our affections, our ambitions, the ambitions, the pride of life. What what he's talking about here is what we strive to have or to achieve. Our hearts love the praises of people. We want the possessions that others envy. We want to be the the one that people look at and go, I want to be like him. I want to have what she has. I want to look like her. That's the pride of life. We want the the stuff, the the possessions, the position that others have tried hard to get. We got it. We want the power, the prestige that others will admire. Well, self-glory sabotages worship and love of God. You cannot love him 
while you seek your own glory. To love God is to lift him high. John the Baptist said it this way. He must increase and I must decrease. So the enemy comes after our ambitions. I want you to notice something, though. Each of these things John is warning about are not um, dangers that are out there for us, are they? It's our flesh, our eyes, our pride. The danger is from within. What John is calling for is actually supernatural. In order to love God more than we love this world, we have to have a new heart. Because our dead heart actually loves the world. Like sin is fun. It's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. Right? If you, if you haven't enjoyed sin, somebody said you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> because it is. But it's fleeting. It's a moment. A flash in the pan moment. As soon as it's over, you'll need more. The attack here is from within. The world would like to tell you, you can be your own hero. You can, you can fix this. Look within you. you rise up from within and stand up and be strong. You're a warrior. You got this. You got... No, you don't. You don't. You're not your own hero. The problem is actually within you. It's your heart, your eyes, your flesh that are betraying you. And you need a savior to come and put in a new heart. That's the new birth that God talks about in Jesus. We're born again and he gives us a new heart. In Ezekiel, he promised, he says, I'll take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'll write on it my laws and you will love them. This is the gospel. The good news is that God changes us from the inside out. We'll still battle with our flesh, right? Romans 7 is written because Paul said, Paul said, I'm doing things I don't want to do. And this is the difference between a born again Christian and and a person who has some moralistic uh, obligation to try to live right. Listen carefully. The person who has a dead heart but has raised up in a church culture. They really want the world. That's what satisfies. That's what is fun, it's pleasurable, it's enjoyable. But there's this sense of moral obligation. That just keeps pulling. And, and really, it kind of makes this not so fun. Like every time I go and indulge myself, I hear mama saying something over here in my head. It's just making me miserable. My moral obligation is pulling on my, my heart. Really wants the world. This is a person who needs to be born again. The difference now in a born again Christian is this. We have a new heart. And we actually want God. We love God. We want to live for God. And yet we live in the flesh. And there's still a pull. There's still a pull to to play in the world. But we're torn. We really do love God. And so Paul writes Romans 7 to let us know. This is the natural way we live from now until glory. In a process of being transformed. That more and more and more. We will see and learn and grow to discover that God is fully satisfying and this is emptiness. That's the process of transformation. And this morning, John's writing to us this letter to go, which one are you? The 
truth is that people don't really struggle with the choice between heaven and hell. That's an easy choice, right? The real struggle is the choice between heaven and earth. Do we want Christ more than we want this world? This world is luring people away. And we are like Esau. Constantly trading true and lasting blessing with the Father for a quick bowl of pleasure soup. John warns, do not be lured in. Don't give way. Don't love the world or the things in the world. So what if you're caught up in love for the world? Let me finish here. One. One possibility is maybe you're not born again. You love the world because that's what your heart loves. The scripture says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Maybe you've grown up in a church culture. You have a sense of moral obligation to God, but your heart really does love this world. Let me tell you the good news. In the new birth, God gives us a new heart and a new desire, a new nature. He puts his spirit inside of us and causes us to walk in his ways. But in 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns and he says this. Listen carefully. In the last days, there will come times of stress. Holding the form of religion. Well, I'm sorry. Men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. And he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding a form of religion, but denying its power. You know, there's a lot of religious people today that really know nothing of true love for Christ. If this is you, abandon religion as your hope and turn to Jesus Christ alone. Ask God to open your eyes to the goodness of King Jesus. Confess your sin to him and trust that he is good and faithful and righteous to forgive and cleanse. He will give you a new heart that actually loves him and not this world. If that's you today, today you can be born again. And secondly, maybe your love for Christ is being choked out by the thorns of this world There's good news for you. You've been born again, but you need to repent and turn to Christ. Well, the same spirit that gives life also nurtures life. And listen, John's words in in 1 John 1, 9 are beautiful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. So saturate your mind and heart with the word of God. Meditate on the work of Christ in the gospel. And stay as close as you can with the people of God. And all of that, pray that the Lord will stir up your desires for him. So that you count everything else as loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's be encouraged by the gospel this morning, church, and be warned by John to walk faithfully with him. Let's pray.